Welcome to the History of Witchcraft. Episode 35. A Magazine of Scandal. Welcome back to the History of Witchcraft. Last week, we looked at the developing witch panic that was spreading ahead of the roaming witchfinders. These witchfinders were both the legally authorised magistrates, Grimson and Bowes, and the amateur but passionate Hopkins and Stern. We ended last episode on something of a cliffhanger. The Earl of Warwick had arrived in Chelmsford to conduct the Essex's eyes and found an enormous amount of witches waiting for him. The problem is, his authority was purely political and military. He didn't have the legal training to differentiate between a by-the-books, honest-to-goodness fair trial and the hysterical slander and rumours that made up the basis of many of these accusations. When considering the reasons that these trials escalated so greatly and with so much bloodshed, one of the potential reasons was a breakdown of traditional legal institutions due to the Civil War. The threat of the King's army moving into East Anglia meant that the usual circuit judges stayed away, they stayed safe behind London's walls, and the local authority of the Earl of Warwick took on the commission to dispense justice. The date was set for proceedings to begin on the 17th of July, and work began in earnest. The prisoners in Colchester Castle were brought out of the dungeons, some of them having not seen the sun for four months. Among them were old friends, Anne West, mother of Rebecca, who had herself taken Hopkins' offer of immunity in return for testimony. Elizabeth Clark, the case that began all of this. They were joined by 27 others, along with an extra dozen more mundane criminals. All were herded onto carts and transported to Chelmsford, some 24 miles away. The scale of the trial was vast. Joining Hopkins and Stern were their six searchwomen, and at least 90 witnesses ready and willing to give evidence against their former neighbours. The venue for the trials, Shire House, was filled to bursting, with the courtyard outside thronging with spectators. Those inside and out shared bread and wine together, discussing the suspects on trial and debating their chances. Just as punishments were a subject of entertainment, so too were their trials, however morbid it might seem to modern ears. The crier called for order, and the sheriff and his clerks took their places before the dock. The justices of the peace, Grimston and Bowes, stood at the very front, while behind them were arraigned the gentry and the jurors. The six judges came in, with Warwick at their centre, while a clerk read out the parliamentary commission to dispense justice. Warwick reminded the jurors of their duty and listed the charges they would be deliberating, including at least 50 charges of witchcraft, before court was adjourned for the jury to consider the pile of witness statements and confessions that had been dumped before them. When the court reconvened, the first batch of prisoners was brought in. Of them, 29 were women on charges of witchcraft. Among these were the Manning Tree Six, now five with Rebecca West's arrangement, as well as suspects fished from the independent travels of the JPs. The first five witches were read their charges, and all five pled not guilty. 
What followed was not a calm and collected trial as we might think of now. Instead, imagine a pantomime, with the crowd jeering and cheering, sometimes throwing things, the judges attempting to keep order, the jurors trying to hear the testimony of the cacophony. It was little more than organised chaos. The first trial to be resolved was that of Rebecca Jones of St. Osythe. She had denied any wrongdoing, but after the testimony of multiple witnesses, including the search women, and the reading out of her own signed confession, her hopes were dashed. She was led away to await the verdict, as Elizabeth Clark, octogenarian and one-legged, made her way to the bar. A young gentleman was called to testify, taking the stand with all self-confidence and zealotry. The Witchfinder General, Matthew Hopkins. Here, Hopkins performed. He recounted Widow Clark's confession on that night just months ago, listing the names she had called her multiple imps, relishing the horrified cries of the crowd as he described Clark's first encounter with the devil. To some in attendance, his tale was quite clearly fiction. To others, it was too fantastical to be invented. Stern then took the stand, confirming his colleague's account, and Richard Edwards then described the strange death of his son. All three testified against Anne Leach, although they did not do so for the remaining two defendants. They didn't have to. Their searchers did so, and after the assured guilt of Clark, Jones and Leach, the others on the stand had little defence. With so much business to get through, the jury was possibly not allowed to retire and deliberate their verdict in private. But in either case, the result was clear. Guilty on all counts. There was only one sentence that could be passed. The women, now convicted witches, were to be hanged by the neck until they were dead. They were led away, back to the jail to await their fate, as the next batch was marched past them to the bar. The remaining suspects faced the same fate. Anne West's betrayal by her own daughter was startling to the court, a sign of how evil her mother had been, and an interesting parallel to the country's own opposition to its father, King Charles. Only one of the 29 suspected witches was acquitted. For many, their convictions were based not on any physical harm caused by their acts, but rather just by their conjuration of evil spirits, a marked difference to previous, less extensive witch trials. One of those in attendance was the Earl of Warwick's steward, Arthur Wilson, who was not at all impressed by the events he had witnessed. He later wrote that he still, quote, could find nothing in the evidence that did sway me to think them other than poor, melancholy, envious, mischievous, ill-disposed, ill-dieted, atrabilious constitutions whose fancies working by gross fumes and vapours might make the imagination ready to take any impression, whereby their anger and envy might vent itself into such expressions as the hearers of their confessions that gave evidence might find cause to believe that they were such people as they blazoned themselves to be." End quote. Now that is a run-on sentence. He was not the only sceptical voice. After the proceedings were declared over, half a dozen magistrates approached the Earl and begged reprieve for nine witches, while others also requested clemency, for those whose cases seemed the most flimsy. Warwick granted a number of these, and requests were made to Parliament stating that the court was not fully content with the evidence presented for many of those being convicted, 
and that they were worthy of mercy. Eventually, nine of the witches were reprieved. Eight of these had been convicted solely for conjurations. The objections themselves may have been raised in part out of opposition to the efforts of Stern and Hopkins. Evidence of this can be surmised from the fact that none of those witches granted clemency were from Manningtree and its immediate surroundings. Here, the witchfinders had the most allies, and it was here that their friendly magistrates, Grimston and Bowes, had spent the bulk of their efforts. The next day, the 18th of July, 1645, 15 of the condemned were taken from their cell and brought to Chelmsford Market Square. An enormous and energetic crowd was waiting around the constructed gallows, cheering and jeering, just as they had when the sentences were read out. One witch, Margaret Moon, collapsed and died on the way, cheating the hangman of his work. One report described her calling out that Satan had promised that she would never hang, and so this was his promise cruelly fulfilled, although this is obviously apocryphal. Elizabeth Clark couldn't handle the ladder on her own with only one leg, and so was helped up to the platform and physically held high enough for the noose to circle her neck. The charges were read out, the judgments given, and fifteen women danced the hangman's jig as the crowd cheered on. Four of the condemned, including Anne West and Helen Clark, were transported back to Manningtree, and suffered the same fate two weeks later. The nine reprieved women remained in Chelmsford Jail while they waited for their pardons to be processed. This took five more months. Two of them would succumb to their conditions before the wheels of bureaucracy could save them. With the assizes complete, Warwick returned to London, a job well done. Grimson and Bowes returned to their estates. Stern and Hopkins, however, could not rest, not while God's work was still to be done. They set off back to Suffolk to continue their work while they awaited the next trial at Bury St Edmunds to testify against more enemies of God. In the parish of Brandeston, all was not well. The secular authority, the lord of the manor, John Revett, had semi-willingly left the area because of his royalist sympathies, while the spiritual leader, Vicar John Lowes, was... well, he certainly wasn't popular. He had been in his position since 1595, and had repeatedly been censured by the church for deviating from the Elizabethan settlement, and probably towards Catholicism rather than Presbyterianism. His sermons were unpopular his tithes excessive. He had his church renovated in his preferred style, naturally paying for this work from the parish coffers. He was a, quote, turbulent spirit, and had a, quote, multitude of vexations. When he was obstructed in his business, he took his opponents to court. At one point, the villagers petitioned for Lowe's to be recognised by the law as a repeated breacher of the peace, and demanded that charges be brought. Lowe's, disputed the fairness of this, and London came to his rescue. This, naturally, did nothing to help the communal tensions. Shortly after this, around 1615, a local woman was accused of being a witch. Lowes, as expected, dismissed the claims as groundless and superstitious, declaring that she was no more of a witch than him. Equally as expected from a community that already considered him a heretic and a papist, Many people in the parish took this as a confession. When Lois took the suspected witch into protective custody, this only worsened the situation, and a mob descended on his home. 
The vicar repeatedly denied that the woman was with him, but when his house was stormed, the woman was found and taken for trial. Lowe's, to his credit, was livid and berated and threatened his parishioners for their superstition and false accusations. He had his brother pay the woman's bail, but in February of 1615, the woman, Anne Anson, was found guilty of murder by witchcraft and hanged. Lowe's rabid defence of a condemned witch was fresh in everybody's mind when the cattle and family members of witnesses began to fall sick and die. Lowe's took one of his accusers to court for slander, while at the same time that accuser took him to court for witchcraft. Lowe's won both cases, his slanderer being made to pay damages, but this was not the end of his problems. For the next 20 years, Lowe's was at war with his parishioners. They struck at him in both the secular and ecclesiastical courts. He hit back with slander charges, and once the Star Chamber. Back and forth it went, until the parishioners hit out in the greatest court of all, the Court of Public Opinion. They published a pamphlet, a magazine of scandal, which spread far and wide and told tall tales of Lowe's degenerate and heretical life. Whether Hopkins read this or not is unknown, but he made his appearance in Brandiston shortly after its publication, arriving in the summer of 1645. What followed was as expected. Lowe's parishioners came forward with claims about the magical crimes their vicar had committed. Matters were not helped by his apparent connection to a witch from nearby Framlingham, who told her captors that Lowe's was the leader of her sect. The vicar was stripped and searched for teats, which were found, and then the septuagenarian was subjected to the watching, kept awake for, quote, several days and nights together, end quote. The new addition to this method, of making the accused exercise to further tire them out, was used. It should be said that the account of his treatment comes from the record of John Revert, the Lord, who returned after the Restoration and inquired about Lowe's fate. So it is possible that the Lord exaggerated the actions of his rebellious tenants. Saying this, however, everything he writes is similar to other interrogations committed by the witchfinders, and they're backed up by the parish records so even if it were invented, it isn't entirely unbelievable. Despite all of this, Lowe's held his tongue, and so the Witchfinder General ordered him to be taken to Framlingham Castle to be dunked in the moat. Whenever when I said that particular water feature was important, well, Lowe's was duly thrown in, and, unfortunately for him, he floated, proving his guilt. Lowe's, who just to remind you was almost 80 years old, had been deprived of sleep for days, and was just brutally thrown into a stagnant and unwelcoming body of water, and he finally broke. He confessed to feeding imps from teats on his head and under his tongue, but denied making a contract with the devil. He also confessed that he used his imps to kill cattle and sink ships, that old chestnut of witchcraft accusations. Lowe's was then taken to the magistrate, who recorded the pertinent information and sent the vicar on to Ipswich jail. The witch hunt had now spread north, into Norfolk, on the orders of zealous parliamentarians and with a little involvement from the witchfinders. Details are slim, but possibly 40 witches were arrested and around 20 hanged. Judging by the location, as they were all in the southern reaches of Norfolk, it is possible that Hopkins played some role in starting some of the trials at the very least. 
Contrarily to this apparent expansion of witch hunting, fears over the war effort meant that a number of jails and dungeons were emptied of prisoners through pardons. They were an expense that was hard to bear and a security risk that was too great to take. Not so at Ipswich, where a newspaper report described that at least 38 witches were being held in the jail. The jailer began taking entry fees from excited locals who toured the cells to peer at the caged witches like some kind of magical zoo. Rumours began to circulate that the reason for so many arrests was that Matthew Hopkins had come into the possession of the Devil's Book, a register of all of his servants across the kingdom. The war of words between royalist and parliamentarian propagandists flared up over the subject of witches. Royalists ridiculed the fact that a staunchly Puritan region like East Anglia was apparently so overflowing with the servants of Satan. Puritans hit back by arguing that it was because of their righteous cause and strong faith that the devil had targeted them so. Parliament itself became increasingly concerned about the goings-on in East Anglia. At first, the commission for the Suffolk Assize was drawn up as normal on the 24th of July. 27 men, including magistrates and aristocracy, were to be headed by the sergeant-at-law, John Godbold, a veteran of the Suffolk Sessions for many years. However, Parliament received a worrying report about quite how many people were being charged with witchcraft, and what type of people. I mean, for goodness sake, they want to string up priests. It was, quote, as if some busy men had made use of some ill arts to extort such confession from them, end quote. So instead of the usual procedure, much like the Essex Assize, the Suffolk Assize broke from tradition, although in a vastly different way. Instead of the usual fare, and instead of sending a military man, Parliament granted a special commission of Oye and Termine, or, to hear and determine, an ancient tool meant to allow quick and decisive action to resolve riots or rebellion, sparks that could spread to something more serious. Clearly, Parliament was concerned that such a witch panic could spread. Godbold was chosen to lead this, and he was dispatched at the head of two clergymen, Edmund Calamy and Samuel Fairclough, leaving a good month earlier than he needed to. Together, the three men spent the time touring the county, mirroring the actions of Hopkins and Stern, visiting numerous jails and dungeons where witches were being held. The conditions in Suffolk were no better than in Essex, and bubonic plague was rife. It is clear that the commission was attempting to fully understand the cases. So on Tuesday the 26th of August, the prisoners of Ipswich were carted to Bury St Edmunds. There were so many, possibly over 150, that a barn had to be requisitioned to house them. Fairclough gave two sermons to mark the beginning of the session. The first, to remind those present that witchcraft was both a very real and heinous crime. The second, warned against false convictions. Godbold addressed the jury to remember three things. Witchcraft was incredibly difficult to prove without a confession that confessions must be voluntary and sincere, and that there was good reason to believe that many of the confessions they were going to hear were nothing of the sort. If Stern was in the crowd, as is suspected, he may have realised that this trial was not going to go as well as the Essex one. The standard business of the Assizes began. The jury considered the cases. Some were dismissed out of hand. 
some were held over for the next session the next day. The trial proper began, and witnesses were called. Among them were the two witchfinders, Hopkins and Stern. This did not go well. Several of their cases had already been thrown out. Others were very quickly ready in line for acquittal. Stern was furious when one of his witches denied her previous confession. Quote, she never confessed any more, but denied what she had former confessed. Stern had further slices of humble pie. Alexander Sussums, the man he indicted for witchcraft last episode, repeated his confession, only to be acquitted. One of Hopkins' witches was, however, found guilty and sentenced to hang. Lowe's, the vicar, was also found guilty and condemned. In all, at the end of the first day of proceedings, 16 women and two men were judged worthy of execution. The remaining cases were to be tried the next day. That day never came. The war, as always, interfered. The proximity of the king's army spooked the magistrates, and they decided that the session was to be postponed for the foreseeable. Nevertheless, those who had been condemned that day would die the next, and they were led back to the barn in chains. Guarded overnight, the condemned swore a vow not to confess further and request forgiveness on the gallows, as was expected. Only one woman refused to take part in their pact. The market square of Bury St Edmunds was crowded. That day, the 27th of July, 1645, was a day of humiliation, dedicated to fasting and the absence of any activity other than God's work. What could be more God's work than attending the execution of his enemies, after all? That such an execution was always a source of entertainment wasn't important. The men and women were led to the structure amid the jeers of the people. The woman who had refused the vow made her apologies, disavowing her compatriots and revealing their secret pact. The charges were read out and the shackles on the prisoner's feet were removed. The first to die ascended the steps, placed the noose around their neck, and the ladder was removed. The drop was enough to tighten the rope, but not to snap the neck and grant a quick death, and so the condemned were left faintly thrashing as the line of prisoners took their places and joined them. Lowe's, the priest who had been convicted for being a servant of Satan, made a final request to conduct his own funeral service from the Book of Common Prayer. Despite the opposition to what was seen as such a Laudian text, opposition that had directly led to him facing the noose, he was allowed to do so. You could say that Lowe's was the only person who ever attended his own funeral. That is where we will leave off for today. I'm sorry for the shorter episode, I had hoped to finish the tale of Hopkins and Stern this episode, but it didn't quite work out time-wise. I'm actually recording this the night before a flight, through the magic of podcasting. Just a quick reminder that I am up for an award at www.podcastawards.com under both the Education and People's Choice category. It isn't a straight-up popularity contest, but listener nominations are very important to deciding a winner, so I would really appreciate it if you could take the time to go to the site and nominate the History of Witchcraft. If you're listening to this on release, the deadline is just two days away, the 31st of July. Also, if you're listening to this on release, tomorrow is my birthday, which is completely unrelated and should in no way be thought of as a cynical attempt to get my listeners to vote for me. No, sir. 
I mean, of course it is, but we can pretend it isn't. As always, thank you to my patrons. The Hammer of the Witches, executed today. Witchfinder General Michelle G. My Inquisitors Elaine D. And Trish G. And all of my demonologists and theologians. They are all fantastic people. And you can join their ranks by going to patreon.com slash historyofwitchcraft. Besides supporting the podcast, and me financially, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Podchaser, or wherever you find your podcasts. It all helps to grow the show, and gives me a warm, fuzzy feeling when I see the download figures grow. You can always drop me an email at witchcraftpodcast at gmail.com, or message me on Twitter or on the Facebook page, at Hist of Witch and the History of Witchcraft Podcast, respectively. The intro and outro music have been provided by Sounds Like an Earful. Thank you again for listening.